Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. How do we successfully transition from industry outsiders to insiders? How do we achieve the pinnacle of success starting a business with little to no knowledge of it? Listen to my first guest today, Michael Houlihan and Bonnie Harvey are the founders of Barefoot Wines and a husband and wife team who train and consult everyone from startups to Fortune 500 companies on brand building, increasing sales, and keeping people engaged and loyal. They're international keynote speakers, best-selling authors, and will give us a sneak behind the grapevine to create the perfect product and brand. Michael and Bonnie, welcome to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here. We love your audience. Yeah, great to be back, Jeff. Well, and they love you too. And it's not just because you did good wine. They like you because of the good business experience. Now, a lot of people do and have heard your story before. They've they've been with you before or seen you and, your, of course, your household names. And it's such a great story. Tell everyone how you got in the wine business without having any real knowledge of the industry because you kind of fell into it by accident a little bit. Absolutely. Yes. We really didn't have any knowledge about the wine industry and we didn't have any money. But what I did have was a client in the industry who was growing grapes and he wasn't paid for his grapes. So I asked my new boyfriend here to go collect the funds. And that was a big $300,000. And it kind of started that way. Michael, well, you know, these guys, these guys were already, you know, the secured creditors sitting around the board of directors table, farmers and whatnot, they were owed money. And, uh, you know, it dawned on me, I wasn't going to get any money out of them, but I was able to get wine and bottling services. So I walked out of there with wine and bottling services, 300 large, right? And went back to Bonnie and say, hey, I think we got this figured out, you know, oh, yeah. all we have to do is come up with a name, uh, a marketing program. Uh, you know, we have to understand, you know, what the supermarkets want. Uh, you know, we have to understand about distribution nationally, internationally. How hard could that be? Right. And how long could it take? Yeah. Right. So the bottom line is we took advantage of an opportunity that was presented to us, which was $300,000 that was going to be lost unless we accepted this trade. Yeah. So now that we had the trade, we really had to get running. Um, our client couldn't take over another business. He was fully involved in being a winemaker and with management of his vineyard. So we said, we'll take it over. We'll take the $300,000 in debt and pay you a hundred cents on the dollar, which was much better than the three and a half cents that the bankrupt winery was offering for his harvests. And we'll just go and bottle it all up and sell it to uh, the chains and pay the grower back, put a couple bucks in our pocket and go on to our next adventure. We thought, well, maybe it'll take three years. I thought it might take five. But what did it take, Michael? 19. <laughs> 19. We were off a little bit on that. Yeah, by a factor of four anyway. Was that so, from the time in which you stepped into it to the time in which you sold the business? Yes. Yes. It was yeah. 19 and a half years. Yeah. When so did you, you kind of, when did you kind of feel 
uh, during that 19 years, though, so let's just use two decades, when did you kind of think, hey, I got this figured out? Oh, boy. You know, <laughs> I don't think we so ever did. I, I think entrepreneurship <laughs> is, is more of a journey than a destination. It's a constant state of improvement. Yeah, but yeah. We, we, we figured we were, you know, on top of it by about uh, 1992. So like, like after we were in it for uh, from uh, 86 to 92, uh, we, in the first five years, it was terrible. Uh, we, were, we were acting on preconceived uh, ideas that all entrepreneurs have about the marketplace and they're dead wrong. And so, yes. you know, it was very painful because we believed in them and we acted on them. And our clients today, we say, hey, don't do that, you know. It's going to cost you 400000 It's going to take you three years. Don't do that. So, uh, you know, learning those lessons uh, was, was difficult. But, you know, you jump into the English Channel, you swim halfway across, you don't get tired and swim back, you know. <laughs> You got to go all, yeah. yeah it, it, would you brethren really know the truth or would you brethren be ignorant of the facts? I mean, that's a key question for a lot of entrepreneurs, right? I think that that's the key to entrepreneurship, which is ignorance is bliss. You have to be willing to learn. Uh, yeah. You can't really have a big ego. Uh, you don't own your business. Your business owns you. Uh, you're not really successful until you sell it. Um so those are st those are some realities that you know took us a long time to really grasp, uh, but we finally got our hands around it. Um, I think I think one of the biggest turning points for us was when we started to get the attention of the international chain stores. Mm. We got the Krogers, you know, the Aldis, uh, the big boys. And, and that was about 1992 through 1995. And, uh, you know, like they say, you push your business to get it going and then you have to run to keep up with it. Well, yeah. this was going from pushing to running. And believe me, you don't have time to, to sit there and cry about it. So, yeah, I'd say 93, you know, but we still had a ways to go. You know, we didn't sell it until 2005. Yeah, I was going to say, so about a third of the way in is when you really started picking up the momentum that you thought you had. So I want to get back to Michael. I've known you for uh, for well over a decade now, and I've always considered you a real good friend. And one of the things I always love about you is your your confidence. And so, and you, and you exhibited it when we first started talking here today. How did you acquire the confidence to drive this into a brand new venture to say, yeah, well, we'll do it. We'll take this. Or did you have no other choice or was it just a conscious choice? No, we can do this. And, and by the way, we'd love to get into the wine business. Well, you know, Bonnie will probably have a lot to say to this, but uh, <laughs> I, I would say that confidence comes from uh, what we call guiding principles. You know, why is the captain confident that he can get that ship to the other port? Well, you know, he's checked the weather. He's got a sound finder. You know, he, he knows what's going on with the wind. He, he knows what's going on with the swells and the tides. In other words, these are all tools. These are tools. These are well, but also experience, too. I got to think you had some experience with the consulting and those kind of things. You know, like a lot of times it folks is. will say to me, when I say, yeah, we can go do that. And they'll go, how did you do that? Well, I bought and sold 250 businesses. Hello, I've done right. this. You know? Well, you know, that, and, and this is the thing. 
you know, today, you know, with the coronavirus and there's so many people uh, who are trying to uh, reposition themselves, reposition their service. You know, they're, they're trying to figure out what they're going to do in the next decade. Um, really, the first thing you have to do, I think, is take inventory. And, you know, that's what we did. We took inventory and we said, you know, we can do this no matter what the challenges are. We know how to learn. We've learned how to learn. We've learned how to take notes. We've learned how to ask questions. Uh, we've learned how to get to the bottom of things. And we understand the basic principles about why people are motivated to, to do your bidding. You know, and, uh, you know, These certain... are guiding principles yeah. that we fell back yeah. on. Yeah. And um, I think that that's the tools that we had in our tool chest was certain things that we'd learned as we've been both working as business consultants for some time. And you kind of learn how to work with people, how to organize things, how to get things done. You have to get things yeah. accomplished. You can't just say, well, it should be this way. Well, it's not. I think the biggest lesson up front that we learned that was a real shocker was if the distributor bought our product, that didn't mean that they were going to sell it to the retailer. And if they did, it didn't mean they were going to get the reorder. And the retailer, just because the product sold quickly and he made a profit or she made a profit on it, didn't mean that the retailer was going to be reordering from the distributor. Now, a lot of people, they get a big distributor of companies. They say, oh, hey, we're really doing we made great. It. You know, yeah, we made it. Top retailer, we've got a big distributor. Well, that's when your work just begins. You don't put your feet up on the table and start smoking that cigar just yet. You've got work to do. Yeah. You've got to do the distributor's job, the distributor salesman's job, the retailer's job. And unless you really understand that distribution chain, you're going to have a lot of failures along the way. Yeah, I, I you got just, a lot of push. You got a lot of push and pull. You had both the push and pull strategy. You had to do both in terms of getting that done. C-Suite Radio. Let me ask you, what was the most daunting challenge that you faced as industry newbies? And then kind of how did you overcome it? Because you didn't know what you didn't know. So once you got in, what was the biggest thing like, oh, my gosh, maybe if I'd have known that, there's no way I would have done this. And how did you overcome it? Well, we thought that we had, well, we knew we had a great product with a great label, a wonderful price, award winning. We thought that was going to sell it. No, no, no. <laughs> that would only sell it to the end consumer. And because the end consumer really wanted those things that we had to offer, we thought, again, the buyers, the wholesalers, the retailers, the big chain buyers, they would appreciate that we had a product that was needed, wanted in the marketplace by the consumer but that just wasn't the truth. They had other things in mind. They, they wanted us to supply a spiff for the salesperson. The retailer wanted us to bring in customers. We, they wanted a new point of sale material for every season. They wanted all kinds of things that we just weren't aware of. We thought having a great product was going to, uh, was going to be the ticket. <laughs> yeah. So how did you come up with a go-to-market strategy? Because that's probably, if I look at most entrepreneurs or most businesses' failures, it's usually in that go-to-market strategy and that they, they make assumptions. They don't get out there, you know, and what I liked about, you know, reading about, you know, when I first read your book, Michael, one of the passages I loved the most was, 
you pulling up to a supermarket with a case of the wine in the rain, you're hauling the stuff around yourself, you're doing it, you're walking in the rain to try to, you know, pedal, pedal your stuff, pedal your wares, you know? And how did you come up with that? You know, I just, I, I'll say this, just like when I was at a billion, billions of dollars of company, meaning Kodak, I would go into Best Buy and put on a blue shirt. And I would work on the floor at Best Buy to see what it was like to sell our cameras or sell our printers. And that gave me firsthand knowledge that researchers couldn't give me. Someone no. couldn't teach me. I was taught right there. And I thought that was important. And a lot of, a lot of people forget that. And so what was your go-to-market strategy? Well, our first lesson was you can't go to market unless you understand where there is an opening in the market. And we would like we like to tell our clients, don't finish designing your value proposition until you know where the gap is, until you know where the opening in the market is. So our go-to-market strategy was to go out and interview. And we interviewed people who were buyers. We interviewed people at all levels of the distribution chain. And we said, where's the hole? Where's the need? You know, and we were surprised what they told us, Jeff. They said, well, you know, we could use a salt and pepper act in a pig. It better be better than Bob and cheaper than Bob. You got that? <laughs> and I'd say, yeah. And they said, can you do that? And I say, sure, sure, no problem. <laughs> Didn't know what it meant. Didn't you had no clue, right? No clue. Yeah. So they found out that a salt and pepper act was two, two varietals under the same brand. A red mm-hmm. and a white. Like, you know, like yep. so and and okay. Cabernet Sauvignon. And then, uh, and then Bob was Robert Mondavi, he dominated the market. And then, um, and then a pig was a 1.5 liter bottle. Now, if we had been from the wine industry, we would have never entered the wine industry with the 1.5 liter. That's the big fat bottle of wine. That's why they call it yeah. a pig. It's twice the size of a 750. It's 150. Uh, it's uh, 1.5 liters. And so here it's a higher. It's a higher price point. Takes up more. It's it's heavier to ship. Takes up more sp- space on the shelf. Right. Yeah. So so less less choices for the consumer. Right. Right. And so this is where they had the gap. This is where they said, you know, here's where you can uh, enter the market. And we entered the market at that point. So that was our go to market strategy. We just went with salt and pepper in pigs. And it was just about as good as Bob. And it was a whole lot cheaper than Bob. (laughs) Does that you look back on that and thought, think, do you ever look back and just say, how stupid were we sometimes? Well, yeah, no, I think I no. <laughs> we were thought I was and stupid. Innovative. <laughs> Maybe he was. <laughs> no, I thought that we were in a constant state of improvement, Jeff. Yeah. All right, <laughs> that's, that's a good spin. That's a good spin on it. I'm, I'm, my, my wife says I'm in a constant state of improvement yeah, as well. So there you go. I totally agree with that. <laughs> Hey, was, was, did you have going into it other than make the money back, right? And other than to establish, I think, a, you know, a business that could, could sustain itself. What were your other early goals? Well, well I, yeah, go ahead. that's a good question. Um, I think our goal was to sell it as soon as possible so we could pay the buyer back or the, the yeah. uh, grape grower back and then go on to another project. Um, once we got into the process a little better, we realized that we had an opportunity to support our community. Yeah. 
and to support the communities all around the markets that uh, carried our product. And that became pretty exciting. That was actually our marketing plan was to support nonprofits and community fundraisers around where our product was sold. And once we started doing that and it became extremely successful, um, we continued doing that even when we had funds for advertising, which we started with no money. We didn't have any way of advertising. So this is how we began. And that became really exciting because we got to know various people and we got to be part of their following. Instead of trying to create our own from scratch, we joined in on people that were already parts of nonprofits or communities. So I, I would imagine timing was important here, too. I, I don't know that for a fact, but, but wasn't, wasn't this also the uplift of lots of new brands, uplift of uh, being able to, uh, an awakening of wine in, in the United States primarily, so the well, timing was good for you? Well, I think, you know, Barefoot was one of the pioneers that made wine approachable. And uh, fun. And fun as, <laughs> as an adult beverage. You have to remember that when Barefoot hit the market, it was eight to one beer over wine. Yeah. Eight to one. Wow. So, I mean, and wine was considered, you know, uh, kind of, a you know, elusive and exclusive. A little snobby. Little, yeah, a little let's, snobby. let's say it, a little snobby. And it's not yeah. that way today. It's much more. I mean, you were an... I would call, and I, excuse me for saying this, if, if I offended, I don't think I will, but you were an everyday person's wine. Right. Oh, definitely. Well, actually, right? I mean, we, we talked to Corison here in a few minutes, which is a fine, very, I mean, they got some nice, nice wines, nice family, great, great, you know, craft, what I would call, I don't know if you can use the word craft wine, like craft beer, but that's how I would be able to say it. Well, what we did at Barefoot is we opened the door to expand the wine aficionado envelope to a whole new generation that might have bypassed wine altogether because of the snobbery and the exclusiveness. And they couldn't speak French either. So, you know, they were being browbeat. Uh, You know, when we started, we went after... Uh, the 37-year-old mom pushing the cart down the grocery store aisle with two and a half kids. That was that was our market, that woman. And what did she want? She wanted a wine that tastes the same from year to year. So that was, that was non-vin right there, completely yeah. different product. And she wanted wine that was consistent, big fruit forward, easy drinking. In other words, she wanted a Tuesday night wine that she could depend on. And that's what we- At get, a good price. At a good price. And many of these women- because they got started on Barefoot, they went on to appreciate fine wines like Kathy's and others. See, Barefoot was non-intimidating. So you could pronounce every word on the label. You could find it easily. It had a big foot on it. So it jumped out on that pizza of a shelf. Her foot. <laughs> was it your foot? Did you use your foot as the beginning? Or did you yeah. put uh, like uh, ink, ink print it down? I did. Exactly. I got the biggest ink pad on the market and put my foot in it and put it on some artist paper and sent it off to our artist that was designing the label. So. And then, as I recall, didn't your mother also, wasn't it your mother that also named the champagne? Yes, she did. My mother came to live with us again, making the best use of your resources. I had a mom <laughs> who uh, knew how to manage a household quite well. 
And um, Michael was complaining because he'd gone to Southern California during the holidays. And he said, nobody's buying wine. He says, all they want is champagne. And she said, well, why don't you have a champagne? And Michael says, oh, boy. He says, well, what would I call it anyway? She said, I'd call it Barefoot Bubbly. So for her 80th birthday, we uh, we toasted with a bottle of Barefoot Bubbly. <laughs> That's that's a great story. Hey, listen, tonight, and we're about to wrap up here, but tonight you've been able to keep a lot of fans. What I like about what you have done is you've taken a company, built it up, sold it. You've done lots of things leading up to that part. But now you're in this, this I want to say, afterlife of corporate life in where you're building your own brand and you've become your own brand, the both of you together, and you've got raving fans. Why do you think you have such raving fans that follow you? Well, for one thing, uh, we start off by admitting to our mistakes yeah. and, uh, <laughs> you know, our foibles. Uh, and I think people identify with us because they say, well, these aren't high and mighty folks. You know, this is not the Steve uh, Jobs go around here. Uh, we're not talking down to them. We use plain English, you know, very few four syllable words. And I think that people identify with that. I mean, we're, we're in times where people are starting businesses because they lost their business and they're looking for this kind of advice, but they don't want to start, you know, halfway to the 45th floor. They want to start out on the bottom floor. Another piece of that is I also like your servant mentality. You're always helping of others. And where did that come from? Well, you know, it's, it's, it came from, a realization that you're not selling a product, you're selling a service. And people don't buy a product, they buy you. And they buy what you stand for. And so the real issue here is, what do you stand for? Do you stand behind your product? You know, what issues are you outspoken on? Are those important to your followers? And, you know, what are you doing to help them uh, move themselves ahead? I think those are the, the kinds of issues that you, you have to consider if you're going to build a loyal following. Well, and it helps a great deal that you have those guiding operating principles, too. I think that's an important part. You know, call them values, or I also call them conditions of satisfaction. Having them clear is real important. Hey, listen, let's turn it over. Some other questions go out to the audience. And I know you're going to be joining us tonight for the members only. So thank you for doing that. We always like to provide our members only an opportunity uh, behind the scenes, even more in depth than what we do here. But this has been awesome. So thank you, Michael and Bonnie, for joining me. And then uh, on our broadcast and I'll turn it back over to Greg and to Tricia. C-Suite Radio. So we have, uh, we are, what a phenomenal conversation, first of all. Uh, Bonnie and Michael, it is always an absolute treat to have you with us. And I don't think any of us that have ever met you have not gone through the wine store and shared with anyone who will listen the fact that we know you and and then very quickly quiz them on whether they know how barefoot wine actually started so um i'm always so grateful to hear the the different pieces of information that you share each time that we get to be with you it's fantastic now mark boundy is one of our faculty members of c-suite network a phenomenal leader in c-suite and he said um his question was i think that culture specifically uh, customer-centered culture, eat sales strategy for breakfast. He wants to know what your thoughts are. Well, I think that is exactly what built Barefoot was um, 
our culture of working with the community and working with the nonprofits. And so I couldn't agree with him more. It's important to not just work with your end user, your consumer, your client, your customer, but also everyone that touches your product or service along the line. So you don't have a direct link necessarily to the end user, but you have to go through a process, you know, your suppliers, your personnel, your own people on your staff, et cetera. And I just add to that, you know, you have to look at your company as a two division company because all companies only have two divisions. One is called sales and the other one is called sales support. Yes. That's it. <laughs> because everybody in sales support, they get their check from sales. And who are the salespeople taking the words from? The customer. So, you know, customer service is the backbone of company culture. And you don't have a positive company culture unless everybody in your company understands where their check comes from and how it gets to them and how their job helps that happen. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Michael. You were explicit about that and and bonnie the the two of you fleshed that out the last time we were together in tucson uh with all of our hero leaders i mean you had it down to the scent and you share that information that transparency was shared across the board was it not oh yes and we're going to share it today in the show notes we're going to give you all of our little um you know infographs So, you know, all of our little sayings and takeaways, you're going to get a list of infographs that you can use in your own business. So it's our gift to you. Thank you so much, Michael. Greg, Yeah, I have a question. All right. So basically, it seems like we're in a real biblical year. So with regard, we have plagues. And I know in California, you have fires and both you and Kathy, you know, hopefully you guys are safe and your properties and your vineyards are safe. So can you just talk about planning ahead? I know it's you know, to a certain extent, when you're an entrepreneur, you're pushing the ship off the dock and you just hope that the boat doesn't have any holes and, and the sail doesn't have any holes either. But, you know, do you do you have any plans for fires or what would happen if, if you uh, uh, if a black swan event occurs? How do you put that in your business plan? Well, I think you have to have everything you own, you know, photographed and converted to digits and put it up on the cloud. In case your place goes up in smoke, you'll have everything on the cloud. But, you know, aside from that, uh, you know, the business plan is plan for the best and prepare for the worst. And so, yes, we have our box. We're ready to go, right, if we have to go. But we are continuing to uh, engage with our clients and uh, with our prospects on a daily basis. And uh, we just continue to act as if none of this stuff was happening because if, you know, if it doesn't affect us, we'd feel really stupid for sitting there like a deer in the headlights waiting to get hit. (laughs) So, you know, look on the bright side. What if you don't get hit? Cross the road, right? Yeah, you've always got to do your best. You put your best foot forward. And no matter what you're faced with, that's always the right attitude. And again, falling back on your guiding principles for success. We are asked, we've, we've spoken to over 60 schools that teach entrepreneurship. And so when the students um, ask us questions after we give our talk, that's a very popular question. How do you prepare for the unknown? And that is the way you prepare. You understand clearly what your principles are, and you always fall back on your principles. Um, that's all we really can fall back on. That's that's our basis. That's our 
our bottom line, our foundation. Right. You can lose all your material possessions, uh, but if you don't lose your life and you don't lose your brain, you still have what's between your ears. And if that is, you know, experience, if that is guiding principles, you can start over. Was there a time when you were, uh, were at Barefoot where, for example, I don't know, you had to miss a shipment because there was a fire in the warehouse or there was uh, something happened to a particular uh, truck didn't arrive and where you really had to scramble? Was there a particular incident where you said, you know something, you know, this was an unforeseen event a la COVID or a fire and, and either by pluck or sheer hard work, we got around it. And the next time we're gonna plan because we're gonna have a fire extinguisher in the warehouse. So yes. can you talk about some lessons learned perhaps by an act of God? Well, this was this was a kind of like, I don't know if this was an act of God or if it, it was It was act, a mistake that was made. Yeah, well, let's just say it was a human <laughs> mistake. Uh, our, our people put the 750, that's the small bottle, back labels, on the 1.5s. And we didn't discover it until one of the largest supermarkets in California had gone through over a thousand cases, scanning them at half price. So we showed up in the office immediately with a couple of things. First of all, we had a check for $5,000. We put that down on the buyer's desk and he said, what's this for? And we said, we made this terrible mistake. We put the 750s on the 1.5s. You've been ringing them up at half price. This will make up the difference and cover you for your, for your efforts. Our truck is going around right now and picking these up. And this is never going to happen again because here's the three things we're going to do to prevent this in the future. One of them is we're going to put one inch high letters on our boxes that say, you know, 1.5 label, 750. I always wondered, you know, when I bought pants, I'd buy Levi's and I'd look in the legs and it would say left leg, right leg. Well, I know my left leg from my right leg. You know, what is that all about? Well, it was to tell the people on the Levi's assembly line not to put two left legs on the pants. <laughs> See, so this is, this is what you do. You take notes, you, you make mistakes, you apologize, you come clean, you take notes, and you be thankful that you have an opportunity to never let it happen again. But as you say, Greg, you prepare. You now, prepare. the buyer may not have ever caught this. Ah, maybe we could have slipped it through, right? But again, falling back on your principles, that's not the way to do business. And he was very appreciative, so much so, he put barefoot on ad for the next month. Fantastic. <laughs> you're, you're speaking our love language. I have Jeffrey's Hero Factor uh, right over my shoulder right here. And, and it has been incredible to watch the values-led businesses go from that point with COVID of, oh my goodness, what do we do? And there may be some other choice words in there to, um, you know, to now we're seeing some phenomenally successful uh, exits and, um, and outcomes. Just spoke with another hero leader today, best year ever. Um, so lots of great things can come from leading with your principles through the most challenging of times for sure. Um, Kathleen Caldwell has a really interesting question here. And again, anybody who's spent time with the two of you, it, this has to come to mind. It, you know, she says such a powerful and awesome couple of partners um, with such powerful individuals. How do the two of you navigate, you know, life and business? <laughs> well, as Bonnie says, when we're asked that question on stage, kids, don't try this at home. No. <laughs> Most 
all couples that try to have a romantic relationship and a business relationship, one or the other or both will fail. And I, it's individual. It's not do this and don't do that. It's really more personalities. He and I have very different personalities. We have different skill sets. So we didn't interfere with each other. Uh, another thing is we would work in different rooms. And that really helps. And we would also set parameters. You know, we do business between these hours on these days. No talk in the bedroom about business. And we plan a vacation without business way ahead of time. You can't do it last minute, not in our industry. Non-refundable tickets. And it's non-refundable plane tickets. (laughs) (laughs) Non-refundable hotel reservations. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, yes, and uh, a, a few other things. It's it's really knowing how to get to a consensus when you disagree and understanding that it's not your way or my way or the highway, but it's what are our goals? Our goals are the same. We've got mutual goals. We take different paths to achieve that goal. And because we love and respect each other and the knowledge that we have, we're very open to hearing different ideas. Because we're, we're both going to the same station. We're just on yeah. different trains. At the end of every show, I always like to do kind of a wrap up or something that I learned from each of the interviewees that I have done. Now, today I interviewed Bonnie Harvey and Michael Houlihan, the founders of Barefoot Wines, one of the most successful, actually the world's most successful wine brand. And they fell into it. You know, somebody owed them some money. They got the business started, took over the juice and remade it into wine and launched a worldwide brand and exited some 19 years later. What did I learn? all about guiding principles. See, it was the guiding principles that they had at the beginning that led them to believe they had the confidence to get into the wine business, even though they had never been in it before. It was those guiding principles that pushed them through the hard times into the better times of understanding where they wanted to go based on guiding principles or what I like to refer to as conditions of satisfaction. And when you combine those with values, wow, a winning combination. And that's what I learned today right here on C-Suite Radio and All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.